Good morning. First Corinthians chapter five. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, how powerful it is. Now, Lord, I pray that as I preach, that I might be spirit-filled, that all of us might be spirit-filled as listeners, that you might have your way in our life. The things that need to change, Lord, that you change them, that you cleanse us, that you give us the grace that we might live a life that reflects your love and your truth and your glory in the world around us. That's the reason you have saved us. And then we'll give you all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians 5, the supernatural power of sin and the protection of church discipline. Sometimes as believers, we don't really see sin. Even as believers, we don't really see sin as all that powerful. We, we let things grow in our life because, well, I'll handle that later. Some people have even told me, well, you've got to have a little fun in life. Like somehow leaving that cancer there would be better than dealing with it. The Bible does teach that there is pleasure in sin for a season, but eventually it brings death. Now, we wouldn't think much of a doctor who you went to visit the doctor for a checkup, and he found something that he could deal with by medicine or by surgery, but he didn't want you to feel bad because that would make you uncomfortable. The, 
The medicine has some side effects. You're going to feel uncomfortable, even sick for a while, but it'll deal with the disease. Or a surgery that would make you feel uncomfortable. And so he just wants you to think of him as nice, so he says nothing. And the disease progresses to the point that it kills you. That is not a good doctor. Yet somehow we've come to the place in our culture, and even in the American church today, we just want people to feel good about themselves. That's where our culture's at. In our culture, there is no good or no evil except for what you decide is good or bad. But now we live in a culture that calls good evil and calls evil good. It's completely upside down. And much of that can be laid at the feet of the church who is called, Paul said, to be the ground and pillar of the truth. We're supposed to be holding up the truth. He wrote that in 1 Timothy 3.15. I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's one thing you get when you read the New Testament about salvation. There's a change in your life. A change. You used to walk in darkness. You, par- you, you partake of the life of Christ, and everything is different. doesn't mean you don't have some struggles. But your desire now is to reflect the holiness for which God saved you for. That's what it says in 1 John 3. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Everyone that has this hope in himself purifies him himself, even as Christ is pure. That's just part of the life of Christ. That's a desire God put in you at salvation that you would be like Christ. But we still stumble. We still have challenges. We still sin. 1 John 1.8 says, if you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth's not in you. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the church's responsibility is to hold up the truth and for the people that have taken Christ as their savior that are part of the church is to model holiness before the world to be salt and light and if Christians aren't salty anymore in their holiness of life God didn't plant a church just to put a bushel over the top and yet that's the culture we live in isn't it This church already, this brand new church in the infancy of the church universal there in Corinth had already begun to learn what it was like to be politically correct. They're beginning to worry themselves. God planted the church, but we've got to make it grow. God planted the church, but we can't have people leaving like it was their responsibility. 
instead of doing what God instructed them to do through the Apostle Paul. What was that? Jesus gave the instruction in Matthew 18. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Sometimes there are sins that we, being a new believer, you don't even know, right? That's possible. But if your brother loves you, he comes along and says, hey, do you, do you realize what the Bible says about that? Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So it starts there. That's where church discipline starts because this message, 1 Corinthians 5, is not only about the destructive power of sin, it's also about the protection that church discipline brings. Church discipline is the same discipline as for discipleship, is when we one-on-one go to our brother and sister that we care about and say, hey man, what's going on? Is this true? Proverbs 16, I call it the wisdom of how to ask questions. It says the wise man teaches his mouth persuasive words. You're not there to condemn or judge. You're there to ask the question, is this what's going on? Do you understand what the Bible says about this? Do you understand the ramifications if this goes unchecked in your life? Because you love your brother or sister. Go show him his fault. If he's not listened to you, take one or two more with you. Why? Because you care about him. Because you care about her. And that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, the first motivation, our motivation in church discipline is restoration. It's not just to put somebody out, it's restoration. It's confronting because we believe what the Bible says about sin. And no church is immune from the contamination of unrepentant sin. There's only three points here in chapter five. First point is verses one through three. Church discipline is protection for the sinning believer because you're loving him enough to make a statement about the sin. What are the reasons for not loving people enough? To not confront unrepentant sin. Well, first of all, maybe it's just, well, they're not affecting me. You know, I just take the live and let live. You know, why, why, it's, they're not bothering me with their sin. Maybe what will folk, folks think outside the church if we actually start confronting people in their sin? And we're talking, we're talking about lost people that come to the church and visit. We're talking about people that are members, that are functioning in the local church. They've had a testimony of, of receiving Christ. They've been baptized, and now they're wandering back to their old ways. Sometimes it's just situational ethics. Well, we know it's bad, but here's the situation. See, I mean, it was really a tough spot they were in, so we can see why. We don't know what the whole situation was here, whether this guy's dad had died or whether they're divorced. And obviously the woman is probably not a believer because they don't say anything about disciplining her. But the Old Testament's very clear. You don't marry your father's wife. It's very clear about it. That's what the law says. Things haven't changed. Maybe it's, you know, I know it's wrong, but, you know. In this situation, it's probably not that bad, or it's not that bad compared to everybody else. 
well, hold on, I know what the Bible says, but that was clear back in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And now we live in this modern day. We need to give people a break. You know, Peter, in his first epistle, talks a lot about sin in our lives, about the ways of the flesh and the fact that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. And so if we're saved, we ought to be different. He said, be holy for I am holy. In chapter two, he says, you're a chosen white race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you might proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God has chosen you he has cleansed you, and now, filled with the Holy Spirit, he expects you to reflect a different purpose in your life. In chapter three, he goes to the home, and he lays down some instruction for how a home ought to look. He said, well, we live in this modern day now. You know, we ought to just do the home how we want to do the home. No, the Lord thought how the home is reflects what you think about God. The Bible never teaches that women are not equal to men, but does very t clearly teach there are different roles that we are to be projecting and we're to be fulfilling. So that according to Ephesians chapter five, when somebody looks at a Christian home, they're gonna be able to see the love that Christ has for his church and the love the church has for Christ in the submission of the wife and the leadership and the provision of that husband. We say, well, I just don't want to operate that way. So what you're saying is, you know better than God who created you, who established and invented marriage in the home, you know better than God how it ought to go. See, that's the problem. That's situational. You take God's word and you find a reason, a rationale why it doesn't fit your situation or why it doesn't fit your friend's situation. Maybe it's just pride like these guys. They were, they were kind of taking pride in the fact that they could be so worldly, they didn't even have to deal with this kind of sin. They were so strong, they didn't have to confront it. Lastly, they might reject us and leave. What about this? Well, if I confront them, they might hurt themselves because they're not a stable person. What did Paul say? First of all, he said this kind of sin doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. Somehow the church in their wickedness had gone past what was even acceptable to the, to the Gentile world around them. Now I realize we're living in a culture that no longer goes along with what the church just used to take for granted because our nation was based on the principles of the word of God and we knew right and wrong. That's why there's a movement to try to get rid of the Constitution today. Because, well, it doesn't fit us anymore. We have different styles and we just want to go by case law. So whatever your wicked judge happens to decide is right is right. And there's no standard. And it's just like the time of judges in the Old Testament. Every man did what was right in his own sight. I'll just decide what's right for me. And that's wickedness. It's rebellion. He said, you've become arrogant. You should have loved your brother enough to be mourning about the situation and what this sin is going to do to his life. But in, in fact, you're puffed up. You say, well, look how holy you are. We can handle this kind of people in our midst. 
and not even confront them. Paul says, I've already decided what needs to be done, but you need to deal with it. He's not there. He's giving them wisdom. He's given them a decision, but he says, I on my part, though absent of body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What do he say? That's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's saying, since he won't listen to you, you put him out and I will deal with him personally. Now you may think that sounds encouraging. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, the Bible says. But it says when the church has done its job and has gone to that person, one, then two or three, and then to the church, and when you tell the church, the whole church prays, and the whole church goes to encourage them to what? To repent. And they refuse that. They have decided for themselves what their life needs to be. Now listen. We don't want to go around forcing people to regurgitate their lives. That's not our job. We're not the moral police. We're not the Holy Spirit. You say, but what if there's sin in the church? There's always going to be sin in the church until we reach heaven's shores. But just like salvation, we know that God will make it happen. Remember when you were growing up and your mom found out you did something and she wasn't around and she said, you say, well, mom, how'd you know? A little bird told me. Well, that's not exactly true. Birds don't tell parents things. I told my boys when they were growing up, when you mess up out there, God's on my side. He's on your mom and I's side, and we'll find out. And then when we find out, we do it. That's what we do with the church. We don't sit down and force people to regurgitate and make them, oh, is there any sin in your life? Right now, you gotta tell me today, and then I will deal with it. No, no, no. Because... When there's sin of life of believer, it will come out in bitterness, in coldness, in lack of desire of fellowship and lack of desire for worship. It'll be there. And see, that's why we want everybody as much as possible to be involved in a small group. That's where most discipline takes place. It's just natural there. You see when your brother's getting out of sorts and, and you just come alongside, hey man, what's going on here? Let's get coffee together. Let's talk about this. You're just, you're not yourself. And then you get down to the root. And you deal with it right there. That's why Jesus said, start there. You start in private because you love people, because you care about them. But ultimately, he says, even if they say, they threaten, well, I'll hurt myself. Well, that might be the Lord letting them go. I don't know. We don't want people to do that. But their threat of leaving or hurting themselves shouldn't be a hindrance for you confronting them their sin. That's what sin does. It destroys, it kills, it's powerful. The old gospel song says, the arm of flesh will fail you, you dare not trust your own. Never think that you've grown enough as a believer you can handle sin. Sin is supernatural, it is powerful, it will destroy you, you can't handle it. That's why Paul says, Flee youthful lust. As soon as you see something coming that's going to be a problem to you, you run the other way. You don't give it a landing spot. You don't clear out the force, say, here you go, sin. I can handle you now. Just land right here. It will destroy you. Secondly, verses 6 through 8, 
Church discipline is not only protection for the individual because you're taking a stand with him and saying, this is going to kill you. And if they say, but it's entrenched in my life, I just can't get over it. Well, God doesn't expect you to get over it. That is the wonderful blessing. Last week, before I came to church in the morning, Christy and I often go through Spurgeon's morning and evening. And Spurgeon was dealing with sin that's entrenched in our life. Maybe, you know, you have a problem with anger and your dad had a problem with anger. So you just think, well, that's the way it is. I guess I'm a Christian now. I just have to be angry all the time. And whatever the sin is, what's immorality, sin has a way of latching on, doesn't it? When you were little, if you were in church, in junior church, I remember they used to have this little illustration and they'd have one of the boys, one of the strong boys come up and say, all right, put your, put your hands together. They put a thread, you know, like, like Samson, put a thread around your wrist. Can you break that? Ah, yeah, broke it. Put two threads around there. Yeah. By the time you get two or three or four threads, pretty soon you're bound, aren't you? That's the way sin is. You think you can handle it, but you can't. But how do we deal with it? And Spurgeon's instruction from the word of God is you take it to the cross. You take it to the cross, just like when you got saved. You couldn't save yourself. You came to the Lord and you said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I am lost in my sin. But because you've given the faith, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin and rose again. Lord, I give you my life. Save me from my sin. That is the amazing power in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, what is that? We agree with God, simply. Not even saying I'm sorry. It's just saying, Lord, this is wicked sin. This, this words, these thoughts, these actions are sin. Your word says it's sin. I agree with you. It's sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. Why is it faithful and just? Because Jesus already paid for it. And 1 John 2 says he's our attorney. He's our advocate because he can show the Father. It's paid for. I paid for this loved one's sin. But here's the great and awesome other part of that verse. He is faithful and just, forgive us our sin. And he does the cleansing. Spurgeon went into detail. You can use the law. You can use self-reformation. It will fail. The only help for a believer is in the power of the cross. And Paul mentions that here. In verses six through eight, he said, not only is it protection for the individual's protection for the church, he says, your boasting's not good. You think you can handle sin. Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Is this church that we know of? Guys in our church knew the elders in that church. The woman in that church had a vision, had a message from God that she was supposed to divorce her husband and marry somebody else. And one of our guys that was good friends, one of the elders said, how come you didn't confront that? Oh, it's too late anyway. They're getting divorced anyway. Within a year, four or five women did exactly the same thing. Message from God, I'm supposed to divorce this guy. Let me divorce this guy and let me turn him in for a new model. Sin unchecked will permeate the whole church of God. He says, verse seven, clean out the old leaven. Now listen, I wish that God took care of all discipline. That would be so much easier for us, wouldn't it? No, he does discipline us in our lives personally, doesn't it? When, when you're listening to the Lord, you're walking with the Lord, you can't have a wrong thought without the Holy Spirit saying, what? And if your heart's tender, you go, yep, that's enough, Lord. I, yep, I got it. 
I got it, that's sin. But the longer we walk away from the Lord, the more callous our heart gets, and pretty soon we mean to have a brother or sister come along and say, what is going on? Doesn't seem like you have an appetite for the Lord or for fellowship or for worship anymore. He said, you make the decision. You clean out all the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. He said, it's, it's not that you have a yearly feast, but every day, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Remember John the Baptist? That's how he introduced them to the disciples the first time. Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's why it's found at the cross. And in church discipline, we're not really finding out. We will find out. The, the whole point is not, years ago we had a discipline situation. The deacons went out to confront somebody. They came back and said, well, I think they're a believer. That's not our job, to decide whether they're a believer or not. Our job is to see if they'll repent or not. And if they do, don't, we have to take the next step. Make the decision. He said, you guys make the decision. Verse eight, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. MacArthur says, leaven in Paul's illustration as throughout the scripture represents influence. It usually refers to the influence of evil. What you do if you make sourdough bread, you take a little bit of that dough and you just keep that. Then you mix it in with the next, but oh, what does that leaven do? It, it affects the whole bread, makes it rise. That's the way sin is, unchecked in the church. He goes on to say sincerity. It doesn't mean to keep the faith with sincerity and the feast with sincerity. Sincerity is the attitude of a genuine, honest integrity from which truth results. In this context, those two words are synonymous for purity, that we might keep the feast in purity. In the Old Testament, when they had the Passover, they were to remove all the leaven from their house. It's all gone. It's all gone. On the other hand, malice speaks of an evil nature or disposition. Wickedness is the act that manifests that evil disposition. We are called to celebrate our Passover in Christ, not with an annual feast, but with constant life devoted to purity and rejection of sin. So when we see that Outward wickedness, that's just evidence of a root of malice, a wrong heart. And so we have to go deal with that. Not only is church discipline a protection for the individual, a protection for the church, but thirdly, verses 9 through 13, is protection for the world. Well, you say, how is that a protection for the world? As the world holds up the standard of what God says is truth, what is right and wrong, the world says, oh, that's what they believe. Now, in some ways, as we see the degradation of our culture going on around us, it's probably a little more healthy for the church. We, don't, we stop expecting the world to be different than they are. Don't expect them to hold up the standard of righteousness. It's not their job. And don't be angry about it. You can watch the news and just get so angry, can't you? In righteous indignation because the world is not listening to God. They never have. The world has never listened to God. There have been different cultures where Christians have permeated and by the saltiness of life have preserved for a while, but ultimately the world does what it does and cultures roll down and then they're gone. We are in that place. 
Look at Romans chapter one, verses 19 and following. When they begin to call good evil and they call evil good, what happens? God gives them over to a reprobate mind. They can't think straight anymore. You look at what wicked government, the decisions they make and for our schools, we've, we've outraced Europe for destruction. So don't expect the world, don't be upset about the world is doing. Our focus is Jesus Christ, our lives, and what goes on in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So what happened when God disciplined? In Acts chapter five, you remember the story? Chapter four, Barnabas was a wealthy Christian businessman and he was so excited about what God was doing, he had a piece of land, he just sold it, brought the whole thing, just gave it to the apostles. Nobody asked him to, nobody told him to, but the Holy Spirit. He just loved the Lord, he just wanted to do it. So he did that and there was a couple in that church, Ananias and Sapphira, and they said, wow. They didn't see that people were praising God, they thought they were praising Barnabas and they said, you know, we'd like some of, some of that praise, we'd like to steal some of that worship from God. So they got together and said, listen, we got the piece of land. Why don't we just sell it and we'll give part to the church. But we'll tell them we gave the whole thing. Just hold some back. And so they did. And the Holy Spirit told Peter what was going on. So they come walking into church and they give the offering or Sapphira gives the offering. And uh, people were so happy. Peter says, Ananias, why has God... Why has Satan ministered in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he dropped dead. Boom. Some young men came out and carried him out and buried him. Pretty soon here comes his wife and she's all happy. She doesn't know what's going on. And Peter said, let me ask you a question. Did you sell the land for this much money? Well, yes, we did. And he said, you know, the land... Before you sold it, it was yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. But God was serious about the establishment of his new, brand new little church. He didn't want them going into Phariseeism. You know, Jesus said about the Pharisees, always going to blow a horn every time they're going to pray or give something because they wanted the praise of men. He wanted to nip that stuff in the bud. And he said to Sapphira, the young men that just carried your husband out are back. They're ready for you. And she hit the ground dead. So what was your response? Everybody in Jerusalem's watching. God's serious. What's going to happen? It'll probably just shut evangelism off. I mean, if you discipline people's lives, people will stop getting saved. You know what that is? That's a wicked look at doctrine. That's saying that we're the ones that affect whether people get saved or not. And so we change the gospel. We tone it down. In our lives, we try to accommodate culture instead of living lives that make people thirsty for Jesus Christ. Verse, verse 13 of chapter five, none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. What does it mean? It means, you know, if you're gonna go to that church, you're gonna have to be serious about God's word. They don't play games over there. In Psalm one, it says, the, the wicked are not gonna stand in the congregation of the righteous because the wind blows and it takes the chaff away. That's what happens in people's lives. That's why you're gonna find out sometimes if people are really saved or not. You see their lifestyle going awry and beginning to drift so you confront them. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, 
the seed falls on all kinds of ground. And sometimes it looked like people really got saved. But the seeds, they fell among the weeds and the thorns. And pretty soon those weeds and thorns, they got traction, they grew up, and they choked the life out of that good seed. And Jesus said, that's the cares of the world and riches. I've seen it happen. Jesus said those people were never saved. Oh, they had a little experience with God, a little religion, but pretty soon, no life. Then it says, some of the people, the seed fell on the stony ground, and at first it sprung up, but it had no root in itself. And it says about their reaction to the word, because you go to them, they're not excited about worship, they're sin in their life. You go to them, it says, by and by, they're offended by the word. The ones in the thorn, they just don't have time. They think they got it, but they got to get money. That's their God. They never changed God's. The other one, they're just plain old offended by the word of God. Listen, the word of God convicts believers, but we're not offended away from it, are we? No, no, it is our life. And when God's word says something, we demonstrate our submission to God by obeying the word. Simple, not easy. But the problem here with these people, they had separated from the world and not separated from sinning believers. So it was kind of like the Pharisees. As long as you're in our crew and you know the right way to do it, then we won't, we won't bring anything to your life. And Jesus saw their heart. We won't bring any, any confrontation into your life. Jesus saw their heart. What did he say? He said, on the outside, you're like whitewashed graves. Oh, you look good to men. But on the inside, you're full of all manner of corruption and dead men's bones. Jesus said the church of Jesus Christ is not to be about appearances. It's about to be about the reality of holiness in our lives. And it's about transparency. You see, because it's not our righteousness. That's why we can be transparent. The Pharisees, they, they widened the borders of their garments and they put more on so everybody thought, oh, look at the holy clothes they wear. God looks at the heart. And in James 5, he says you can trust one another enough that you're righteous Jesus Christ that you could be transparent with one another. Transparent. What's the spirit of discipline? Verse nine, he said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous, swindlers, idolaters. You'd have to go out of the world. They had withdrawn their influence from the world They'd stop focusing on people coming to Christ because I'll tell you, one of the great blessings or things that happen to you when you're out there witnessing, there's, there's kind of something the Holy Spirit does that it makes you want to live holy because you want them to come to Christ too. They withdraw on their witness and now they thought it was up to them to build the church so they just wanted to play down the message. Years ago, there was a famous Christian that was invited to, to pray at one of the president's inaugural prayers prayer breakfast and then somebody dug up the fact that he had preached a message saying that homosexuality was sin like 15 years before that instead of just saying hey that's right that's what the bible says he said oh well our message isn't about that we don't want our people to think that's what our message is about now listen understand our job is not to straight the world out it's not our job our job as a church is to be the reflection of God's grace and holiness to a lost and dark and dying world. You're never gonna straighten the world out. Our mission is not to save culture. If you read the end of the book, the Bible says 
Things will wax worse and worse. We're not going to save culture, but we can pull some from the burning if we don't compromise the message and we don't live compromising lives. So we said, I don't want you to pull out of the world. That's what they've done. In this epistle, what we see is, I mean, next chapter, he's going to talk about greed. They were willing to sue one another. He gets into the next chapter. He talks about idolatry. We already know there's immorality. And it just shows you that this epistle reminds us of the same capability of believers. You still can sin if you want to. But now you have grace. You don't have to sin anymore. He says, listen, I want you to not stop associating with the world. I want you to associate with them so they can see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But I wrote to you not associate with any so-called brother if he is, and then he gives the definitions. These are the things, unrepentant sins that you deal with. He's an immoral person. Or covetous, he's a greedy person. Oh, man, that's pretty tough. The church going to deal with greed now? It's supposed to. Say, well, we only deal with immorality. That's not what the Bible said. Or idolatry, that was a real problem then. And idolatry is not just if you're bowing down before an idol, although that can be a problem to Christians, can it? But the same challenge they had back in Paul's day. Somebody gets saved out of a pagan family and they're used to going to temple and doing all the feasts of the temple. And so they just go along. They keep going back and bowing down to those same images. He said, but you know, my, my family grew up in this church here and so I just want them to Lord. So I just go and I still bow down to the image of Mary and I still bow down to the image of Jesus and I bow down to the image of the saints. It's idolatry. But I want to win the Lord. You're not going to win people the Lord God by compromising and going along with their false teaching. You win them the Lord by loving them and saying, listen, I can't do that anymore. I can't be an idolater. Jesus has saved me. He's given me some clear instruction. I'm not to bow down before any graven image. Or a drunkard. Oh, that's a tough one in our culture because drinking's everything. Oh, well, I got a little drunk. It's not a big deal. Here it says it is. Here it says it is. It says leadership of the church shouldn't be known as drinkers. That shouldn't be the first thing people know about the leaders in the church. Oh, they really know how to handle their liquor. They're really good at drinking. That's the culture. That's not us. And if we see somebody has a drug problem or a drunkard, that's a sin problem. It's not just a disease. It's a sin problem. That Jesus can conquer in their life if we'll go come alongside and say, this is not acceptable for a believer. Or a swindler. Somebody that's just always looking for that deal, even if it means cheating people to get ahead. Don't even eat with such a one. Associate means to get mixed up with. To have private hospitality. And it also means the public observance of the Lord's table. No, no. If they've refused to listen to God's church, then they're put out of the fellowship. Remember, we started with, we want them to repent. We want them to be restored. They've refused that on every level. Say, well, you're called a brother. You want to say you're a Christian. We can't associate with you anymore. Now, here's the good news. 
If they're really a believer and you put them out of the fellowship, God will deal with them personally. And if they're really a believer, they'll come back. They'll come back or they'll go home to be with the Lord. If you discipline somebody out of church and they just go on with their life and they're happy and nothing ever happens to them, the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that he scourges every son he receives. He deals with them personally. That's why Paul said it's so serious. You put them out of the fellowship, I will deal with them personally now. What does the Bible say? In Hebrews it said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Fearful thing. And we believe, I believe in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives instruction because this church was obedient. How does the whole church be involved? One, by agreeing to the discipline, and second, by carrying it out. So they call you on the phone after disciplined out, and they say, hey, listen, I know the church is me, but hey, why don't we just get together and have coffee? Just want to fellowship with you a little bit. Because I know you don't go, we can still be friends, right? And you say, no, we can't. Oh, man, they'll think I'm mean. You're not being mean, you're being loving. You're being loving. But this church was obedient. And what happens? I believe the second chapter of 2 Corinthians 2 is Paul is saying, listen, he's repented. You can receive him back now. So how do you know somebody really repents? Time, not tears, time. Sometimes people just feel bad about being caught. But we take them at their word. But if there's no repentance, if the lifestyle continues, eventually they need to be put out. And that's the loving thing to do. He gives them instructions. You remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Don't even eat with them. Warren Risby said, we're not to judge outsiders. God will do that. But we are to expel from church fellowship any Christian who will not confess his sin and make things right. There must be prayer, the ministry of the word. There must be sincere Christian love. The very act of church discipline is a testimony to the world and a warning to the church and especially to new believers that God expects his children to be different from the world. To condone sin is to deny the very cross of Christ. What we're saying is it really doesn't change your life. Nope, it's just another religion. He goes on to say, discipline is difficult, painful, and often heart-rending. And it's not that we shouldn't love the offenders, but here's, here's the key. We love Christ and his church and his word even more. Our love to the offenders is not to be sentimental toleration, but correcting love. So that's pretty tough. That's because we love the Lord. That's because we love people. We love his church. And we love the world. There must be a consistent testimony of holiness. And it doesn't happen automatically. Said there in Acts 5, at first people were like, ooh, what about those guys? But then it says, God continued to add to that church. Why? Because it's a healthy church. It's a healthy church. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, even for the hard parts. We're so thankful that you've given us this instruction. And Lord, we're accountable for it because we love people. More than loving people, we love your word and we love you, Lord Jesus, and we want to be found obedient. So, Lord, work at our hearts. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.